If, uh, if you are visiting with us today, may uh, be a strange time to have uh, turned up uh, because uh, of our subject matter, which is not something that uh, is something that I deal with very often when it comes to, uh, uh, to our regular church preaching. It's the sequel to a message that I started a fortnight ago. Uh, and some of you were uh, here for that and will recall, if you were not, it is absolutely critical uh, that you listen to that in order to have the foundation to what we're looking at today. Everything today comes out of two weeks ago. If we just put today into practice, we've missed everything because foundation and backdrop was two weeks ago. So if you're not regular with us, it uh, may seem a little bit, uh, you've only got the sequel and you need, to, uh, you need to get the first part. We're looking into the biblical pattern for church giving. And as I said last time, a fortnight ago, uh, these messages have in no way been designed to extract money out of people. And most of you are aware that there are many, many people in the world today in the name of Christianity who are seeking to line their own pockets, uh, who are false teachers and false preachers. Uh, and we, uh, we don't want to be anything near that. Uh, our desire here as an eldership and as a leadership is that we would operate biblically and understand God's design in the realm of giving. As I said last time, normally when the pastor stands up the front and mentions the, uh, the concept of giving, people begin to tighten up and, you know, there's, uh, there's a sense of uh, awkwardness in here. I hope that doesn't happen here again today. It certainly didn't fortnight ago, and I trust that is not the case today. The reason that we are doing what we're doing is later today, Lord willing, we're going to have our congregational meeting and we're looking at an entirely new budget. Totally different to anything perhaps we've done before. And I can uh, see Fred looking at me now going, "Uh uh-oh, I've been away. I shouldn't have gone away as our treasurer. (laughs) It is essential for us as a local church that we come to the scriptures as our foundation for everything that we do. Uh, We're not interested in what the culture, culture has to say. We're not even interested in what contemporary church tells us we ought to do. We want to align our thinking and all that we do with the pages of God's word. This is our mandate. This is our model. This is the pattern that we must follow. And I would like to say this morning, by way of introduction, the church as a whole, globally, not local church, but globally, the church as a whole is largely misinformed about this important subject of giving. And clarity must be had if we're going to honour the Lord with our finances. Um, and I want to say right up front, I am not interested in being culturally acceptable. I'm not interested in even being, in the Christian sense, acceptable. I'm interested in being biblically right. And I know that's your heart, that's your passion as a church. We want that. We want to line up with the pages of Scripture. And if the whole world opposes it, so be it. If we're the only ones left standing alone, let's stand alone for God's glory. Because this is our mandate. This is that to which we look, the scriptures. And so I hope that uh, helps just summarize a little bit of what we looked at last time uh, and where we're going this morning. There's four points to our message. We've looked at the first three 
a fortnight ago. And the first one we looked at a fortnight ago was money and the church. And that was interesting. We looked at money and how it operates in the church and what that all means. Then we looked at misconceptions about giving. All these ideas of what giving is and tithes and so on. We looked at how much of that is all Old Testament that has been fulfilled and completed. And we live in a new era in the New Testament. And then thirdly, which was most important, we looked at the motives for giving. Why do I give? It's not because my name's on a membership roll. That's not why we give. We give because we love God. It's always the same motive. It's because of God. It's not to support the pastor primarily. It's not to support one another. It's to honor the Lord. It's to love God primarily, first and foremost. And we looked at all those motives. And today, we, Lord willing, there's a bit of material in front of me. We're going to look at the last aspect, which is the model of giving in the New Testament. The model of giving. I want to look at how did they do it. And this to me is exciting. I love looking at the history of the church and how it operated and what they did. And today that's what we're going to do. So join me as I preach a message entitled Giving God's Way, Part 2. Giving God's Way, Part 2. Heavenly Father, as we commence this time of teaching, as we look to your word, as always, I ask that you would use uh, what is a frail and fragile man, uh, Lord, and Uh, Use my voice, uh, use who I am, Lord, to communicate effectively these truths. Uh, Everyone in this room, myself included, knows that uh, it's never about the man. It's always about the word and God. And so we pray, O Lord, that uh, despite the vehicle, myself, that you would use this mightily in our lives, cause us to understand greater truth from your word, uh, that we would live in accordance with your word in this important subject of giving. Uh, Lord, let it not be about... uh, Uh, building empires or lord setting up monuments oh lord but may it be about the exaltation of jesus christ and all we do in jesus name amen the model of giving in the new testament now i'm sure you'll agree with me that we as creatures we as human beings are creatures of habit we are that's what we are we generally blend into our environment which often means that we simply accept what we come to see around us, often without asking questions. We do that in all kinds of things. But as Christians, we must align our thinking to that which is contained in God's word. And that means we have to ask some questions. Some of those questions include, what are we doing? And why are we doing it? Now, it's unacceptable to say things like, well, we do this as a church because... That's the way it's always been done. And that's, that's faulty reasoning. Or we say things like, uh, why are we doing that? Well, they set that up many years ago and we wouldn't want to change from that. And that's faulty reasoning as well. Our question must be, does this find its source in the word of God? Is this what we see in the pages of scripture? When it comes to contemporary church, what I mean by that is now, the here and now of church. And in relationship to the New Testament, when we compare these two, we need to understand there's some major differences that have taken place between New Testament, first century church, and today. I want to give you just a couple to help us understand. First of all, the first century church did not own property. They would meet together in large public places. They would meet together in homes They would uh, be in one another's presence on a daily basis. They would meet together to break bread. They would do all of these things in one another's houses. They didn't have 
buildings that were theirs. They didn't have all that we see today in contemporary church culture. In fact, the first building that was ever recorded as being set up for the church was in a place called Jura Europus on the Euphrates River in 240 AD. So for the first 150, 200 years, the church, the local church, did not have a building of their own. You say, why is that important? Well, when I survey church today, I know that so much of it is about a building. So much of it is about having the the fanciful aspects of entertainment. So much of it today is about how we look and what we do as opposed to what we are. And the reason I say that this is really important is we need to understand first and foremost that a building is not the church. Now, I know you've heard me say that probably a hundred times over this last year. The church is not a building and the building is not a church. The church is a group of people that can meet anywhere in the Lord Jesus Christ's name. And so all I want to say in this introduction is let's not get too attached to what we have here and now as a building, which is just a rented facility. But understand that was never the case at the beginning. Okay, that's important. Number one. Secondly. The first century church was a persecuted church. And because of that persecution, their hearts were knit together as well as their wallets in an unusual way. We have almost total freedom, do we not? Here we are, I can preach today without anybody coming in here seeking to drag us away, take us to prison, scourge us, even behead us. Now, the day is coming, folks. The day is coming. We need to be ready for that, but we don't have it now. This is nothing. What we do right here is nothing like what the New Testament church was going through. We sit here on relatively comfortable pews. We have warm place. We're not out in the open in the rain. We're not in the corner of the the temple at Jerusalem, gathered together with 3,000 other people, huddled together, boiling hot sometimes and freezing cold. Here we are in a beautiful building that God has given to us. This is nothing like what it was like as an environment for the New Testament church. You need to remember that. Thirdly, the first century church did not have welfare. They did not have pension. They were dependent upon their own ability to work or the church took care of their own. Those were the two situations. Either you can work with your own hands and make money for your own family or you cannot as a widow or someone who's needy and the church would look out for you. We don't see that today, mostly. Fourthly, The first century church were reliant upon the apostles' supernatural revelation directly from God for them. Now, we have the completed canon of Scripture. This is our model in all things. We no longer have the apostles coming to us and telling us what the Lord would have us to do. We have the finished, completed word of God written here for us to follow. That's different. And then lastly, by way of just another thing that's different between today and then in the first century was that the first century church was a family in every sense. This saddens me perhaps more than anything. Today I see church, not, I'm so thankful that it's not like this here, but church on the whole, a disjointed, entertainment-focused, once-a-week social club where people come together, they feel good, they go home, and that's the end. That's not church. 
That's not family. That's not what we see revealed in the word of God. When we read the word of God, we see they had all things in common. They took care of one another. They would die for one another. Their love was so amazing that the world outside said, I don't know what you've got, but I want it. We don't see that today in church, mostly. It's a far cry from the New Testament model. Now, I just want to say, in case you're thinking, oh, boy, this is going to be a strange budget he's about to put together. There's nothing wrong with owning or renting a building, but it does not become the focus of what the church is. There's nothing wrong with living in a peaceful location like we do, enjoying the freedoms that are ours. But we need to be aware that it will not always be this way. This is a small window of opportunity, particularly as you look through the history of the church. We are living in a very safe situation. This is a very unusual time. So for the remainder of our time together this morning, I want to show you the four areas of financial giving that we observe in the New Testament. There are four that I have studied out throughout the scriptures. I can only see four and they relate to two categories, internal giving within the local church and then external giving. And there's two points in each, two internal and two external. We want to look at those. So first of all, internal what do we see in the, in the Bible regarding internal giving within the local church? And I've called this point internal relief fund for the poor and needy. This is the internal relief fund for the poor and needy. I'd like you to turn with me to Acts chapter 6, please. And uh, if you don't know where books of the Bible are, you're about to learn because we're going to turn to quite a few. All right, Acts chapter 6. If you're not sure, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Acts. Acts chapter 6. We're looking at an internal relief fund for the poor and the needy. Verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenistic arose, the Hellenistic, uh, Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution and the twelve summoned the, number, the full number of the disciples and said, "Is it not right that we should give up preaching the? Is it not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables? Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit." And Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Permanus, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. We find a very strange circumstance happening. Remember that the day of Pentecost, just a little while earlier, has occurred and 3,000 souls have been saved at one time. The church begins an incredible situation. Could you imagine this morning if, as a result of the preaching, 3,000, the entire Alexandra community, got saved? Now, we would say, hallelujah, what a, what a great thing. But that's a huge number of people, isn't it? The church begins. Now we find in Acts chapter 4 and verse 41 that another 5,000 men are saved. Okay, while uh, Peter is preaching at Solomon's porch there in Acts chapter 4 verse 41. 
Then we come to Acts chapter 5, just before this chapter in verse 4. And the Bible says this, More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. This church at Jerusalem is expanding at a rapid rate, is it not? Now, most of those people from the day of Pentecost were not probably from Jerusalem, or a lot of them weren't. But I, my estimates are that we have at least seven or 8,000 people in Jerusalem now who have made a profession of faith and have entered into the church at Jerusalem. That's a lot of people. We might need a few more elders for that, Terry. All right, if that suddenly happened, right? That, that's a huge increase in numbers. Now, if you turn to Acts chapter 4, if you would, and look at verse 34... And verse 35. This is an amazing couple of verses. Acts chapter 4 verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. What an amazing circumstance. Can, can you believe on this particular those rich Individuals who God had prospered came and sold their properties, brought their proceeds to the feet of the apostles, and these apostles began to distribute it. And the Bible suggests here that the apostles, in the initial sense, were responsible for distributing these funds to the needy within the church at Jerusalem. And 8,000 people, there's going to be some needy people in there. By the way, let's not forget the context here. Most of the Christians have now lost their jobs. Most of the Christians now are suffering persecution because of the name of Jesus Christ. And most people are now losing any opportunity they have. So there's a lot of needy people in the church at Jerusalem at the beginning here. And here the apostles are distributing to each as they have need. We get to chapter 6. And in chapter 6, we find that the need was so great that the apostles now are no longer preaching the word like they are supposed to in prayer and, and being involved in prayer because they're constantly having to distribute these funds and, and food and so forth. And so what occurs now is that they set up seven men of good report, spirit-filled individuals who can look after this whole thing so that the apostles can go and preach the gospel as they're supposed to. Now, that, that makes good sense. We see that there in the pages of scripture. Now we say, well, that was then. You know, there, there were a lot of poor and needy people in the church at the beginning there. Surely that is not a continued situation for the church. Surely we don't need to have initial relief funds for poor and needy people, do we? Uh, internal relief funds. We don't need to do that in our church, do we? We don't have that sort of a situation. That's not true. Because when we fast forward the clock in the New Testament, so we're looking at about AD 31 now, somewhere around there, day of Pentecost, maybe a little bit later than that, between 31 and 33. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, which is some 35 years later. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Paul is writing here to his son in the faith, Timothy, who is currently at the church at Ephesus, operating in the role of a pastor or elder there. And this is what Paul says to Timothy some 30 plus years after the day of Pentecost and the church at Jerusalem in verse 16. If any believing women... 1 Timothy 5 verse 16. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. 
We don't have the time to read all the context around this, but here is a summary of what we're talking about. Truly widows refers to those who do not have sufficient help from their own families. Now, earlier in the text, we're told that a man who does not provide for his own family is worse than an infidel. Now, there was in that time widows whose husbands had died, whose families had maybe moved away or were no longer in existence, and the church was specifically to look after them. I want to say this to us this morning. It has and always should be the concern of the local church to look after the poor and needy in the body. It's what we are supposed to do. In fact, it is so much the case that this is a gospel principle. We find that this relates to the very, the very start of the gospel where the Lord Jesus, we're told by Paul, came, though he was rich, he became poor, that for our sakes we might be rich in him. The reality is that within the church of Jesus Christ, we are to look after our own, the needy and the poor, and we are supposed to make sure that we have sufficient funds available to be a blessing in those circumstances. Now, Contemporary church culture is not like that today, is it? That's not. We're more concerned about uh, the fancy things. We're more concerned today about glamorous things. We're more concerned that when people come through the door, they go, wow, this is a great church. Look at their great big sound system. Look at their great big projector screen. Look at all these other. That's not what the church is all about. The church is about looking after one another. And we read that. Remember that when we went to uh, our previous passages, when we looked at the body, the church. We minister to one another. We're in this together. In fact, James writes at the end of chapter 1, religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction. That's what we do in James chapter 1, verse 27. I want to say also that the greatest testimony that any church can ever have is that we care and love for one another. Is that not what Jesus said when he said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love, agape love for one another, caring love, the same love that God has for us. If we want to reach a community, if we want to be seen to be what God has called us to be, it will come about by our love for one another, our care and our desire to minister to the needy and the poor in our midst. And so for us today, regular local church attendees, as we consider our new budget today, it's essential that we include a relief component for those in our midst, whether now or in the future, who are in need, who are poor, who need help, who are truly widows, who are the fatherless or whatever the circumstance might be. So I hope you agree based on even just that one or two texts, the importance of internal relief for the poor and the needy. The second thing I want us to look at this morning, and this one's a hard one because it relates to the man standing behind the pulpit right now, which is me, but it is a biblical principle. We want to look secondly at internal support for the teaching pastor. Internal support for the teaching pastor. You may not know, but there are three interchangeable terms in the Bible for the pastor. Elder, bishop, and pastor. Those three words relate to the same individual. In our church at this time, we have two, my brother Terry and myself, who God has put here and has appointed to be pastors. 
Now, we don't have the time this morning to look at what the criteria for such a person is, but we will in due course. But the Bible does tell us that the shepherd of the flock of God in a local assembly ought to receive wages from the church. I want you to turn, if you're not still there, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, same passage we were in before. I want you to look at verse 17, if you would please. Again, Paul writing to Timothy, the pastor says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. I want you just to consider a couple of observations from this text this morning. You may not have seen this before. The Bible says the elders who rule well. This literally means to preside over the church with care and concern. This is the the person who operates with wisdom, with love, genuine care and concern for the flock of God. To rule well. The Bible here says something that you don't read anywhere else in the scripture. That he is worthy of double honor. Speaks of respect and reverence for the position and the calling that God has placed upon his life. Worthy of double honor. Some suggest that this text is in reference to the kind of salary that a pastor, a teaching pastor ought to be on. Because of the next verse that says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. And then we note that it also says there, especially in verse 17, those who labor in preaching and teaching. Paul singles out in the church those who have been called of God to the public teaching and preaching ministry of the church. He goes so far as to even uh, reenact, if you like, an Old Testament principle that was there in Israel that they would not put a muzzle on an ox so that it would be able to eat while it serves its master. And the whole point here of Paul's position is, we take the muzzle off the ox so that it can eat while it treads out the corn, how much more so ought we to be concerned with those who are called to the office of the shepherd? In fact, in 1 Corinthians 9.14, Paul says this, The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, it's really important at this point, uh, church, that we understand something here. And that is that in the wake of what we see as so many pastors, preachers, apostles on television and televangelists who are constantly looking for money, we are on an awkward ground, are we not? Where we hear people say things like, well, we need to, you know, we need to take care of the pastor or the shepherd. There are so many who are out there looking to make for themselves a fortune. Someone said it right. Every pastor faces one or two or three of the problems that I'm about to mention. Either he has a problem with gold. He has a problem with glory or he has a problem with girls that's true everything that i have ever seen in my history in my own life i recognize that one of those three is a problem either he's concerned he gets his temptation is that he wants to make money out of this because he can manipulate people that's the gold concept then there's the glory well you know what you've got to think something special to me because i'm high and mighty and look at me i'm on this platform that's you know 25 
five centimetres higher than you or, or whatever. And you think of yourself as, you know, you, you build yourself up. And then there's obviously the problem with girls that has happened so many times in the life of people in ministry. And this matter of gold is a real problem, isn't it, in churches today? All over the place where men are seeking to get from people. And we don't want to do that. We, don't want, we, we want to be in line with the scripture. But the Bible does say that it is essential that the church take care of the ones who are called to lead it. It's the church's responsibility to ensure that the teaching pastor is honoured and provided for. And I hope you appreciate this morning. This is such a hard message to preach because I'm standing behind this pulpit and I hate that I have to talk about my own role here. It's very difficult. But this is what the Bible teaches. As we consider our new budget, therefore, it's essential we include an internal support component for the pastor who's committed to the teaching and preaching of the word. Thirdly, so we've got two internal. Internal relief fund for poor and needy internal support of the pastor and then we come thirdly to external the external and i've called this the external relief fund for poor and needy assemblies external relief fund for poor and needy assemblies turn with me please to romans chapter 15 romans chapter 15 i told you we'd be turning to a few places this morning see what the bible says here about this Romans 15, if you'll find verse 24. Towards the end of this epistle, the Apostle Paul says to the church there at Rome in verse 24 of chapter 15, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were well pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Here's what had happened. The churches at Macedonia had gathered together funds because the church there at Jerusalem, that large church with all those people that were needy and the centre of persecution, were in desperate need. And so the churches there in Macedonia and Achaia had gathered funds to help the poor saints, the church of Jerusalem. Now, I want to, I want to further develop this point for a minute by having you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And this is directly in line with what we just read in Romans chapter 15. Okay? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Again, Paul, same apostle, writes to the church at Corinth, chapter 8, verse 1, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God or the gift of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Okay, you see we're on the same thing here. We're talking about the same thing. Romans he says, we've got some gifts from the church. This is the same thing he's telling to the church at Corinth. Notice what he says in verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, 
not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. This is an amazing portion of scripture. We, again, we need to get the cultural context. These are poor, extreme poverty is occurring in these churches. People are no longer able to work like they used to. There's very little money coming into the individual lives of these Christians. And so uh, concerned are they for one another that they gather together some funds from these churches in Macedonia, which are the church at Philippi, the church at Thessalonica and Berea, and they put together some money and they send it by means of the Apostle Paul to the church at Jerusalem because there's some needy saints there. That's an amazing thing. Extreme poverty, it says there in verse 2. And not just have they given of their means, but beyond their means. This is totally illogical. If you went to a financial planner, they would not say to you, go ahead and give out of your extreme poverty to help another church. You're in severe affliction, but I suggest you go and take every little bit that you've got and give it to another assembly. That would be foolishness in the eyes of the world, would it not? But this is the New Testament church who's walking with God. What an amazing circumstance has occurred here. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, the very next chapter, I want you to see how this all works, beginning in verse number 1. Paul says, Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. Let me pause before we continue reading. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul commanded the church at Corinth to start putting money aside to help the needy churches of Jerusalem and surrounds. And the church have not been doing it properly. And we know the church at Corinth is a catastrophe at the best of times. And they have not done that. They've decided they're not going to do that because the Apostle Paul is causing them grief. So Paul now says, you promised this. Now you go ahead and put it together so that when the Macedonians come across with me and serve you, they know that you are going to do what you promised. Okay, that's the backdrop to what we're looking at here. In verse 6, Paul says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By 
their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Paul gives all the motive and the reasons in this text as to why it's absolutely essential a local church is involved in seeking to help the needs of another one. Just want to note really quickly before we draw to a close some observations from this particular text. In 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 6, look at what the scripture says there. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Generous givers will reap blessings from God. That is a principle you can know. You will never be able to outgive God. Okay? And it is never a bad investment to give to God's glory. That is never a bad investment. God promises that if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. If you go generously, you will reap blessings from God. Now, it's also important that we note in verse 7, each one must give as he's decided in his own heart. Giving is personal. It must not be based on others. We're not concerned about, well, that person gave this and that person. That's not. We before God, our own heart and our own wallets and our own lives. Everything that we are is before God. And we come before him and we say, Lord, what is it that you have me to do here? How would you like me to do this? Is it to be monetary? Is it to be in another way? It, our giving is before the Lord, not before others. That's not the point of it. And we, I hope we understand that. And then we see that giving is to be the expression of a cheerful heart in verse 7. If you ever feel like it's under compulsion, you're doing it wrong. I can tell you personally that there is such a joy in the knowledge of being able to say, Lord, you have blessed me in this way and I know that you have put on my heart to give this. And so you do that privately, quietly perhaps, and you pass that to that person, that individual, that group, whatever it is. And the joy that comes from that is amazing because the Lord Jesus says it is more blessed to give than to receive. There is great joy and there is cheer in giving the way God wants us to. And then I want you to look uh, verses 8 through 15. We're not going to look at them, but I just want to summarize that whole passage by saying this. Giving God's way will result in contentment. Sufficiency, the Bible says. It's the same word, contentment. Thanksgiving and spiritual enrichment. Here's the summary. God promises to bless and enrich the church that is concerned for the needs of other assemblies. So as we come to a time in just a little while where we look at a new church budget, as a eldership, we want to put to you as a church that it is essential that we have a component in there that ministers to the needs of other churches, wherever and whatever God brings to us so that we can be a blessing to them just like these were, so that we can gather our funds and meet the financial needs and be a help to other churches who are wanting to do what we are, preach the gospel and the word of God. So we have external relief fund for poor and needy assemblies. The last thing we're going to look at before we finish here this morning is the fourth and final point. Is I want you to see another aspect of external. Internal we have two. External we have two. The last one is this. External support for ministers of the gospel. 
The final form of giving that I see in the scriptures in my study of it is in relation to those who serve the Lord outside of our own local church. So we're talking about in Paul's day, we're talking about the apostles, not in our day. But in our day, we're talking about perhaps pastors elsewhere, teachers, evangelists, full-time Christian workers who are serving the Lord in another place, but are also in need of support. And to understand this point, I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. If you'll find verse 10. Philippians chapter 4, towards the end of this great letter, this is what Paul writes in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. By the way, if I may for just a moment deviate from my notes and say this, how often is this verse misused? You know what this verse is all about? This verse is all about contentment. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is all about learning what it is to be content in whatever situation I am in. That's the context here. We often misuse this text for our own Uh, misunderstandings of scripture really yet verse 14 it was kind of you to share my trouble and you philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when i left macedonia no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only even in thessalonica you sent me to help you sent me help for my needs once and again not that i seek the gift but i seek the fruit that increases to your credit i have received full payment and more I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. The Philippian church, we noted earlier, was a giving church, a faithful church that was constantly giving. They gave to the needs of Jerusalem. And now they've given to the Apostle Paul at least on two occasions personally as a minister of the gospel. I want you to see what the Bible says about this kind of giving in verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Now we can take that for ourselves because it's in the context of this passage. If we will obey that which we see in the scripture and give towards those outside of our local church that are serving the Lord in some full time capacity, then God says here by the Apostle Paul that that will be fruit to our credit. I don't know about you, but I believe that we want to be a fruitful church. I'm not talking about having our coffers filled with money. I'm talking about being fruitful. I'm talking about bearing fruit for the kingdom of God. This is the means of doing that. We also find that in verse 18, the Bible says that it is a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. I want our life as a church here to be that which is pleasing and acceptable to our God. I don't want us to just follow the culture. I don't want us just to follow what's the the fads of our day. Let's follow the word so that fruit may abound toward us. 
that we would build God's kingdom as he put us here to. And then look at this verse 19. Again, how often this verse is misused. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. This is not a promise you can flippantly say to the Christian. This is a promise given to the church that looks after the ministers of the gospel. And my God shall supply every need of yours. It's not an individual verse, it's a church verse. The needs of the local church will be met by God when they agree to obey that which we find here in the pages of Scripture by looking after ministers of the gospel outside of their own local assembly. And so, as I've said right throughout the message, as we consider our new budget, it's essential that we also include an external support component for the ministers of the gospel who preach and teach the word of God abroad. So let me say this in closing. I know there's a huge amount of information there. Some of it probably quite academic, maybe. Some of it um, maybe a little bit even dull. I hope not, but perhaps. Here's the final application. This is the part we need to get as a church. Giving God's way will always result in fruit and blessing to our account. Now that's not our motive. Our motive is not that we would be blessed. We don't pull out our wallets and start giving out all the time because we say, well, I just want to be blessed. That's a prosperity gospel. That's not what we're after. We're after, I love God. He, I'm walking with him. He has put within my heart the desire to do this to the best of my ability. As he shows, I will do this. We don't need to know what each other... None of that is what we're on about. But we do need to understand that this will be fruit to our account and blessings from God are promised to the church that follows this biblical pattern. Again, 2 Corinthians 9.8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, there's a lot of alls in there, you may abound in every good work. The eldership at MCCBC have constructed a new budget for this financial year, which I believe is in line, or at least in starting to line up, with the pattern we see in the New Testament. It'd be great if we could extend some of the aspects of it, but in time perhaps. And it's our prayer as the leadership here at this church that you will embrace the proposal. That you will say, yeah, we see that in the pages of Scripture. We want to be biblical. We want to follow that pattern. And even though it may not marry up perfectly in our mind and we might look at it and go, whoa, how, does this, how is this going to operate? We walk by faith and not by sight. We trust God to do as we step out in faith, obeying his word, that he would bless and multiply fruit to our account. We want to give God's way, not the world's way, God's way. Lord, we thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for... Uh, uh, each attendee here this morning and uh, Lord uh, it's a very specific message for uh, regulars and, and those who are here with us local uh, in this local church and uh, Lord I pray that uh, even those who perhaps are visiting with us would find uh, help and hope in the passages of scripture we've looked at uh, perhaps in their own uh, local assemblies as well they would uh, be able to implement some of these truths Lord we desire as a church to be biblical we desire to follow the pattern that we see there uh, and as we meet in just a little while to talk about what we do next, uh, I pray that you would give us wisdom. I pray that you'd give us insight, help us to understand the way forward uh, so that we would build your kingdom as you desired and as you designed. 
uh, Lord, that we wouldn't fill the, the coffers with uh, money and be uh, so concerned with uh, savings and all the rest of it and forget fully our calling in this world to preach the gospel, to be a light to uh, a generation that knows not God. Help us to be what we need to be, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.